Welcome to Relation Fix, the podcast dedicated to creating healthy, happy, and passionate connections with our loved ones. I'm Shana Dubay, your host. Let's dive in. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Relation Fix podcast. Guess who's here visiting again? It's me. It's Frank. Frank, the producer. Hello, hello. (laughs) Today, we are talking about attachment styles and attachment theory. Ooh, very exciting. I know that I say this about literally every single episode, but this really is a good one. Attachment is about how we form relationships with others and ourselves. So hold on to your hats. It's going to be a full one today. And because every episode is great, don't forget that we're here every Monday. So please subscribe, leave us a review or a comment, and definitely share the episodes with your friends and loved ones. Absolutely. Why are we talking about attachment styles? Well, because in life, we form attachments. We love, we connect, we form communities, and our attachment style often indicates whether we will form these attachments securely or insecurely. I wanted to give an overview of kind of what attachment styles are, what attachment theory is, just so you'd have a little bit of background. And then we're going to talk about the different types of attachment styles. Back in the 1960s, there was a British psychologist by the name of John Bowlby who studied attachment theory. He began by looking at children's distress levels in relation to their caregivers' care and responsiveness, particularly in very early life. So we're talking birth to around two and a half years with that being the critical period, but also up to five years old or so. So very early life. There were also lots of other psychologists and psychiatrists who studied attachment. Mary Ainsworth is a notable one with her strange experiment. And they had some very, very interesting studies. And they all basically concluded that the attachments that you form in early life have a significant impact on how we form relationships as adults, which I think we could all say is probably true. While the names of the attachments have evolved over time, currently there's two basic types, secure and insecure. Or I and, like to call secure and most of us. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> yes, pretty much. That's kind of how it feels. But insecure is actually broken down into three different subtypes. Yes. So we're going to just start right now with secure attachment style. What is it? Secure attachment style is about 50% of the population. Some estimates are a little bit closer to 60. And I want to specify that this is the American population. We're talking about the U.S. because attachment styles and attachment theory is different in different places. So this is really about sort of American society and values. That percentage still surprises me, though, that it's so high. It doesn't seem like half of our American population is 50 to 60 percent secure because it just seems like so many of us are messed up or had messed up upbringings. I agree. It does sort of feel that way. But sometimes I wonder if it's because if you have an insecure attachment, you tend to attract other people with insecure attachments. Maybe. Or we're just louder about our problems. Like all Maybe. the secure people are busy like yes. being secure. Yes. I also think that there is a little bit of this idea that sort of everyone has a problem now. Like everything mm. is being made into like a disorder or an issue. Like if you look at the, the size of the DSM-5, it's bigger than the last one than it was the one before that. Oh, yeah. And so you're driving too slow disorder. Yes. And so whereas obviously there are some very serious disorders and things like of that course. that we need to uh, to look at. Some of it is, I think, human behavior and can kind of fall into some of these types of things. For people who have a secure attachment, their parents really met their emotional needs of the child. They met their physical needs, social needs. They Therefore, those children felt safe and secure. They had a home base to come back to, making it okay to go and explore the world. Their caregivers were responsive to social cues. They felt safe and loved. People with secure attachment often find it easier to express their emotions. When they form relationships, they're, they tend to be more trusting, more open, They're generally not fearful of the world. 
they also tend not to tolerate too much bad behavior in relationships. <laughs> they tend to think. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, right? I just think about the 60, 70 tries that I've given people. Yeah. Those of us who have insecure attachments tend to tolerate a lot more difficult behavior. But people with secure attachments, they they tend to not really tolerate a lot of that. They kind of want to say, you know, I, I don't wish you any ill, but this is my boundary. I'm not going to cross it kind of thing. They feel much more secure in themselves. For people with insecure attachments, a child's basic or emotional needs were not really met by their caregivers. So their parents or whoever took care of them were either neglectful or unresponsive to social cues. Also, things like prolonged maternal separation. So if something happened where your mom wasn't able to be with you, if she was ill or something happened where you guys were separated for a prolonged period of time, things like this can happen. So it may not be just you have like a bunch of parents that don't give a crap. Like it's not that necessarily. It's sometimes there's reasons beyond their control that caused them to be out of that space, but that has an impact on children. So we see some of this kind of stuff with children who are adopted out or separated away. If there's removal from a caregiver's space for a long period of time, then it can be really detrimental to kids, especially within the first two and a half to three years. Often a child with insecure attachments ha are fearful, anxious about the world. The world feels unsafe. They often feel unseen. They're usually quite sensitive or have hypersensitive nervous systems. So they tend to be a bit more reactive to the things that are happening around them. And as we said before, insecure has like three main subtypes. So question, it's a little unrelated slash actually related to the topic, I think a little bit. Do you have Hulu? I don't remember. I do. You do check out the parent test. Oh, that show. I feel like it kind of ties into some of this and it shows all these different parenting styles and they kind of go through some challenges on the show and they vote on which parenting style is the best. Interesting. I've only seen the first episode so far, but oh, I'd love to check that out. Yeah. Hmm. Out of the three subtypes of insecure attachments. The first one that we're going to talk about is anxious attachment. Ooh. Sometimes it's it's called preoccupied attachment too. A lot of these have multiple names and sometimes they have a different name for when you're a child versus an adult, which just makes it that much more confusing. But for this, we're just going to call it anxious attachment. Okay. This is a about 20% of the population. So if you think about the United States, that's a good amount of people. Oh, yeah. it's, a, it's a large percentage of the population. People with anxious attachment, they often make attachments really quickly. So people become important to them quickly. A lot of times you can see what it, us in psychiatry say, a pervasive pattern of unstable relationships. <laughs> and so you see these relationships where, you know, someone becomes important to you very quickly and you attach very quickly and they feel like they're super important, but it's not a super secure relationship. You feel insecure in the relationship and oftentimes have a deep fear of being abandoned or rejected that like that person is going to leave you. People who have anxious attachments can often be perceived as sort of clingy or needy worried that the other person doesn't love them and needing consistent to sometimes constant reassurance of love. I like to think of anxious attachments as very much being like, I hate you. Don't leave me. Oh yeah, definitely. It's a tough place to be because you're always questioning whether or not the other person loves you. And it's, it's painful. It's hard. It's scary. It's draining. Very much so. And people with anxious attachment tend to be kind of avoidant of themselves. And so we pretty much end up, I say we, because I have dealt with anxious attachment issues in the past. I still deal with some of that now, but I've worked really, really hard on it and to create more secure attachments. But you just have this internalized feeling that you're just never going to measure up, that there's something about you that just other people are going to reject. and. I know for me, 
it makes you it makes you want to be like, let me tell you all the bad things about me so you can reject me now, but please don't leave me. And it's just, it's really, really tough space. It's very, very anxiety producing. Obviously, it's called an anxious attachment. And you reject your so much of yourself that it ends up being really difficult to even look at yourself because you just feel like I have so much internalized shame that this person is never going to really love me because I can't even believe that I'm lovable. When we were researching information about attachment styles, we had listened to a podcast with Marissa G. Franco, who wrote a book called Platonic, which you should 100% check out. It's really good. She said that people who have anxious attachments often cannot differentiate between being in love and being triggered. It's very, it's a very powerful statement. And ever since we heard that, it just stuck with me. That was a while ago, too. Yes. And I, I felt like it was like a huge aha, also being called out. Yeah. Also, like really being seen because in reality, I think that's really true. And the reasoning behind it a lot was love is a really powerful emotion. It's very strong. It's very full. And so is being triggered. And so if you're used to the high emotionality of being triggered and also being triggered by someone that you love or you're supposed to love, sometimes you can't tell the difference between those two things. It's almost like the love and the pain are closely linked. Because if you think about it as a child, the person that you loved the most and wanted to connect with, if it's your parents or your mother or father, then they are the ones who are supposed to love you, but they're also the ones that are hurting you. And so you feel like very insecure around what you have to do to love. You become oftentimes a people pleaser. You try to pretzel yourself and make yourself into something totally different so that you can be worthy of love, which let me just tell you, it never actually works because you never really get to that place. Because even once you try to, then you just find another thing that you feel like is unlovable about you. It's a really painful attachment style. I think when you're used to the chaos as well growing up, it's like you just the chaos is almost what keeps fueling your connections and what keeps you invested. Whereas like maybe secure, maybe some secure attachments are almost boring Mm -hmm. instead of healthy. So you just let them go instead of actually giving them a chance. Definitely. When I was thinking about this for myself, I really, I spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, anxious attachment and abandonment issues and things like that. And I really thought a lot of it kind of had to do with my father kind of coming in and out of my life a few different times at like very vulnerable stages. And this wasn't because he didn't love me or anything like that. It was, he was trying to provide for the family. He was trying to make a better life for us. But when you're a little child, you don't, interpret them being gone in that way. You don't rationalize those things. You just know that they're not there. But when I was actually looking at this and I'm, I'm looking at the ages of like birth to two and a half to three years, maybe up to five, my father was there for that time and was very attentive to me. And so I was, I've really been digging in trying to figure out how that could have happened to me, like where this could have come from. And and I think that my father was so attentive to me because it's something that he talks about a lot that I actually didn't have as much time bonding with my mother because my father was so attentive. If I would cry, he'd be up. If I was sick, he was there. He would wheel me around in a in a stroller. He would do all of the things that needed to be done to take care of me a lot. And so it it was never, I don't think, his intention to pull me away from my mother. And I don't know if this is really it, because who remembers what happens when you're two years old or one year old? Like, I don't have any of these particular recollections. But if I have to think about the small bits of information that I have, I do wonder a little bit if that felt removed from my mom and that had an impact on me. Because when you look at attachment theory, If you look at John Bowlby's work and Mary Ainsworth's work, 
a lot of times what you see is a very significant attachment, particularly to the mother, that your attachment to a mother is different than any other attachment, which makes sense because you're grown in her womb. You're in that space with her. You're sharing that entire space, all that chemistry, all that time you're growing inside. So your connection with her, it's not, I'm not saying it's better or worse than anyone else's. I'm just saying it's different. There's a different component to it. And I think that we all might find it difficult to say exactly what that thing is, but it does feel different to me and I think to a lot of other people. And so I do wonder a little bit if that had an impact on me as far as attachments are concerned. And when you're little, you don't rationalize those things. You just know that they're not present. for some reason. And so I'm wondering if that would be considered a little bit of maternal absence. And if that had an impact on me, this is literally just thinking about this in the past few days while, Hmm. while working on this episode. I feel like it did, or I feel like it would for me, my mom was a little bit guilty of being overprotective, but then Mm -hmm. at the same time, it was like, I grew up with a single parent. Essentially I was raised mostly just by her. Not mostly. I was raised just by her. And she had to obviously work a lot. She had to work every day to be able to provide, you Mm -hmm. know, we grew up in low income. So then it's like she would be there in like spurts and moments, but then she had to go. So then there was like this abandonment as well. Not that she wanted to, but that's like she had had to. to. Yeah. And that those things, they have impact. And and I, I don't think that it's the caregiver's fault in these types of situations. I think we're doing everything that we have to to survive. And in reality, if you think about how we evolved as human beings, we evolved to be in community where you had your mother, you had your aunts, you had your family close. There were lots of women in community and we don't live that way anymore. And so I think it's easier for us to kind of fall into that space of not having the village right? It takes a village to raise a child, not having the village in that same way to raise you. You would have lived in close proximity of everyone and they would have all been there. And we have not evolved that much from there. So I think that there is something to be said about the detriment of being separated and certainly a single parent, you know, doing everything they can to just take care of you. But as a child, you don't rationalize that. You don't know. You don't think, hey, my mom's at work. You just think my mom's not here, and I don't know why. Yeah, I mean, my family, they were pretty good at the whole village thing. My grandma raised me a lot. I lived mm. with her, so she mm. was becoming a maternal figure for me. Well, and you talked about before how close you were to her and how yeah. su- how much of an important figure she was to you. And I think you can see that, you know, that bonding kind of happened in that space And not because your mother didn't want to be there. She didn't love you. had nothing to do with that. It had to do with, I have to do this in order to survive. And in fact, her absence was because she was trying to take care of you. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, but it's, it, it can be really difficult and it's hard, you know, and, and you faced an additional issue of not having your dad in that space. And you have, yeah, you have the perception of the parent and the perception of the child and they yes. definitely go in different directions. Oh, very much so. So anxious attachment is a really it's a really tough place. There's a lot of pain involved. The next insecure attachment style that we're going to talk about is avoidant or dismissive. And this was an interesting one because I've spent obviously a lot of time looking at anxious attachments. This is about 25% of the population and these people with avoidant or dismissive attachment styles They actually pride themselves on individuality and independence. They actually tend to have higher levels of self-esteem. They tend to have a good amount of friends. They often can have a large amount of sexual partners. They really pride themselves on being able to just go it alone. They do not want to depend on others or have others depend on them. And when they make attachments, it tends to be more superficial. They tend to avoid strong displays of affection or emotion. They tend to kind of move away from that space. And it can create some difficulty in attachments to others because they don't want to go deep on things. And that's really where, you know, strong connection comes from is being able to move into that deep space. And people who are avoidant don't want to. They tend to drift off. They eventually end relationships, sometimes ghosting, that kind of thing. 
but they, they get rid of this relationship or this attachment before it becomes too deep. They just, they don't want to be connected in any deep or real way. I do. I, I worked with someone once who had a bit of an avoidant attachment style and she was a very kind and giving person, but was like very much like, don't hug me. I don't want to be close to you. I don't need anyone. I'm very independent. I don't want to have a relationship. F relationships. I'm out of here. I don't, I don't need a man. I don't need anyone. Like I like to have my friends, but I want to pay for everything. I want to make the choices. I want to do all of this stuff. Just very, very independent, hated taking anything from other people. Actually really hated receiving a lot of things, wouldn't tell you what she wanted for gifts or anything like that. So it can actually make it difficult. Well, my question is typically independence is viewed as like a positive, strong Mm -hmm. quality. So yeah, how does this, how does this become like a more negative thing? Because this is an insecure attachment. I think insecure, we think of the idea of insecurity as like, as being low self-esteem, like I'm an insecure person, Mm. but I think insecure attachment is we are made to attach. Mm. Human beings are made to form community and form connections and people who are avoidant or dismissive of attachments to others, they don't want to be in relation with other people. They don't want that space. They want to push it away. They want to keep everything very superficial. And so what ends up happening is it's, it's a, poor type of attachment because you don't get the depth that actually really brings so much of joy and happiness and fulfillment in life is that space of really being able to go deep with someone and they avoid that they don't they push it away they don't they don't keep it there they don't allow they don't move into that space they just don't allow it to come in and it's really kind of against how we're hardwired as human beings that's why it's considered an insecure attachment is because if you think about human beings as like a connection or a group they're kind of floating off or chopped off on their own where they're sort of just in the periphery instead of really being in that space and as human beings it's not great to be in that space it's not a secure attachment space. I just want to say when you have one person who experiences anxious attachment, you have another who experiences more avoidant. It's so challenging. Yes. <laughs> going through that dynamic. It's like a it's like a battle all the time. The interesting thing about it is if you see people who have anxious attachment, they often become attached to people with avoidant attachments. Yeah. And In a way, it's almost like the people who are avoidant need the people who are anxiously attached because people who have anxious attachments tend to deal better with rejection and like it doesn't feel good, but they're going to tolerate it. They'll tolerate that person not showing up. They'll tolerate that person ghosting them or not showing up in the way that they want to, whereas somebody with a secure attachment isn't going to do that. They're going to be like, oh, you're not interested. I'm not going to chase you. See ya. You know, I'll move on to the next person because they have this idea that there's going to be another person. They'll, they'll, I'm worthy of going to this other place. But because people with anxious attachment are often avoidant of themselves, they will, they will endure a lot from people who have avoidant attachment. And so it's one of the ways that people who have avoidant attachments actually get to stay in relationships a lot. It's definitely a dysfunctional dynamic, I think because it creates a lot of pain on both sides, but it's almost like they've, they're like two sides of the same coin in a way. The last type of insecure attachment is disorganized or fearful avoidant. And this actually is a very small percentage of people. It's around three to 5%. Which is still... You know, you hear three, five percent, you don't think that's really a big number, but when you think about everyone, oh, it's still millions in the country, of people. Yeah. Yes, it's still millions of people in, in reality, but it is a very small percentage in comparison to the other attachment oh, yeah. styles. So this attachment is often the most difficult of all of them because it really is a combination of anxious and avoidant. It makes me think it's not the same thing, but it kind of makes me think when 
you know, you have some people experience depression, some who experience anxiety, and then you have those people that unfortunately have to experience both and they're battling. And so actually this used to be called anxious avoidant attachment. It was Mm. like the third of the insecure attachments. Okay. But they changed it to disorganized, understandably so, because it's a pretty confusing space to be in. Yeah. It makes understanding their reactions in social situations really confusing and unpredictable because they can be very attached to you, sort of like that anxious side of like, I really want to be in this space with you. I really want to be attached to like, all of a sudden I'm gone. Like, I need to be away from you. I don't want to be in this space. See ya. Like, it's just, you don't know how they're going to react. And it it can be really distressing to the person who is on in relationship with that person. But it's also distressing to them because they don't really know how to be. This style is most often related to childhood trauma and abuse, which makes sense because perceived fear is a really a central component to their development. Their source of safety, the caregivers that were supposed to take care of them were also an incredible source of fear. So these are people who were abused, people traumatized, and it breaks down any trust that a child has in their caregiver. They don't know what to expect. They want to move close to them, but they're also afraid of them. So you could see how that dynamic, especially as you grow and become an adult, if you aren't able to work through that, that that dynamic would be mimicked again in your next relationships. They often become very unstable or ambiguous in relationships. They both want to be in and they want to be out. They want closeness, but they're not able to trust. They have a lot of difficulty trusting people. This type of attachment is often seen as sort of one foot in, one foot out. One foot in, one foot out. A little hokey pokey. Definitely. And of course, that can create some insecurity in the person that you're in a relationship with. So it's a really painful place. And you can see how that dynamic would be really difficult. And it would be hard for a child going through that type of of trauma and and having that kind of childhood to learn how to be in a relationship. How how do I even manage a relationship? I don't know what to do. Can I trust this person? Can't I? I don't know how to even manage myself. But what we know is that the all three of these insecure attachment styles have a very strong correlation with mental health issues, trauma, personality disorders, which definitely impact your ability to form really meaningful, healthy, and happy connections. So per usual, we wanted to know what you guys thought about some of these topics. So we put up our weekly Facebook post and asked the question, what did you learn from your family about emotions and vulnerability? Very interesting responses. Definitely. I want to bring up, before I get to a couple specific comments, I want to bring up a general theme. We tend to have general themes every question, which is pretty interesting. And this general theme this time was more of like, you should bottle it up, your feelings, you should suck it up. Yeah, this idea that like, emotions are vulnerable, feelings are vulnerable. You don't don't express them, don't show it because it means you're weak. Mm. And in the words of Brene Brown, vulnerability is not weakness. It's not. Having feelings is human. It's not weak. I love that. Absolutely. And we need to have a a better discussion about this. I do feel like it's changing a little bit, but I do think there is this overall idea that if you express how you feel about something, then there's something wrong with you. You need to be independent. You need to pretend like everything is okay. And sometimes everything is not okay. And saying that or feeling that does not make you weak in any way, shape or form. And vulnerability is the doorway to everything that's good in life. It lets in some things that are really hard and painful, but if you're not willing to be vulnerable, you will never be happy or fulfilled or loved or connected. You just can't. So vulnerability is not weakness. That was very well said. That's powerful. I really, I believe it's true 100%. So Ashley N said, I learned that they were unsafe and expressing emotions would likely lead to a withholding of affection or love by some family members. Yeah. I mean, you can see that right there a little bit about what we were just talking about is this idea of like, if I express my emotions, then somebody's going to withhold love. 
And so you could see how that might lead to an insecure attachment type. Because when you have caregivers, it's very important that a caregiver meets your physical needs, certainly, but we also have emotional needs, social needs, spiritual needs. We have these other needs. Go back and listen to our needs episode (laughs) if you want more, right? If you want more information on our needs. But if you look at that, if, if those needs aren't being met, or if you say, if I have this particular emotion, I'm not going to be loved. As a kid, you're going to hide everything that you are. And if you feel like you can't trust this person who's supposed to be taking care of you with your emotional self, you can develop an insecure attachment around that. A lot of times anxious attachments like that, I know people pleasers tend to fall into that space. It also could potentially make you avoidant where I don't want to be in a relationship because I know it's not safe with other people. My emotions, my true self, I can't show that. So you could see how an insecure attachment could potentially develop from that. Of course, I have no idea if Ashley has an insecure attachment or not. And certainly she could have worked through many of this and and able to form really good, secure and healthy attachments now. So Martin S said, I hate to say it, but I learned that their emotions were important as mine were not. As children, we always had to take emotional care of our parents, but they really left us to take care of our own, not particularly successfully. My father's emotionally cut off from the world and my mom like a needy baby, a great combination. But you make the most of the situation you're dealt with and hopefully grow from it, even if it takes a long time. That's so intense. It is. Yeah, that's hard. You can tell how difficult it it must have been to kind of be in that place. I think there's a lot of children that sort of feel parentified in this idea that they have to take care of their parents or that their parents' emotional needs are their responsibility. There's a lot of people that I work with and also know where they have felt the need to take care of their parents' emotions And what happens in turn is that they recognize that their emotions cannot be front and center, that their emotional needs aren't being taken care of. So you're not going to trust them. You could see how this would also lead to potentially an insecure attachment. Hopefully you have other people that you can form that attachment with, but especially if this is your parents, particularly your mother, we kind of talked about, you know, that attachment to mom, then you just, it definitely changes you it definitely creates a different dynamic for you that you have to work through. I think back then, I remember a lot of the times kids were sort of viewed as maybe not as insightful as they really are that they don't take in and they really do. We are like sponges. Yes, very much so. It's pretty amazing. If you think about babies when they're born, we don't think a lot about it because we just think, oh, they're totally dependent. But if you think about how much they have to learn and understand in such a short period of time, it's a lot. They have to do a lot. And and basically what they're learning is, how do I get loved? And so when we're looking at attachment style and we think about social cues, we think about the things that babies do in order to get their needs met and to create that love and connection. They cry, they smile, they crawl, they move towards the things that they need, you know, they move towards their parents, they move towards things, we learn how to crawl and move. If you look at those types of cues, if you have parents that are not responsive to those things, then you don't form that connection in the same way. It's it's incredibly detrimental. And so you learn these things at a really early age, and you take that information with you. When we think about these kids are, they're so little, And they're not really, oh, they're not going to remember. They don't really know. But you're talking about attachment style. You're talking about personality disorders. You're talking about a lot of these developmental dynamics. This is pre-remembering, really. This is birth to two and a half years, maybe five years. This is really early development. And in that place, you have to learn and you have to do a lot. You might not have a cognitive recollection. This could be pre-verbal. You might not have this cognitive recollection of what's happening but it still impacts you and can impact you. So you might not even really know what happens. CPTSD is real. Oh, 100%. It really, really is. And what I think I want everyone to know is that even if you have an insecure type attachment, it doesn't mean that you're stuck in that space forever. No. 
you have the ability to move from an insecure attachment style to a secure attachment style. And actually, it can actually change a little bit across relationships. So if you have a more anxious attachment style, but you're with someone who has a really big anxious attachment, then you might actually end up becoming a little more avoidant. Or if you're in a really trusting, loving relationship with someone that you know is never going to leave you, and you have an anxious attachment, you can become more secure. You can feel better and more trusting that that person is really going to be there for you no matter what, that they're not going to walk away. And so those things can really move and change, but it's not always dependent on the other person. It can also be dependent upon what you do, what work you do on yourself. Of course. Yeah. I think, you know, sometimes if we're in that insecure attachment and our partner might also be in an insecure attachment space, Mm -hmm. it's almost like you don't want to take it anymore. You Mm -hmm. don't want the same fights to happen over and over again, or you don't want certain, essentially the chaos gets tiring over time. Like it's maybe addicting at first. And that's what we talked about how Mm -hmm. sometimes the love and the triggers are confusing, but then eventually sometimes you just reach a breaking point where you're like, I can't do this anymore. I physically, mentally, emotionally can't do this anymore. And I need to make a change. And then that's, I, Mm -hmm. I believe you and I have worked really hard on working more towards a secure attachment. We were very, I feel like we were pretty deep and anxious attachment and we definitely had to do some work very much and it's incredibly painful yeah it hurts so much but sometimes you just don't know how to not do that you just don't know how to not be there well it's hard to break patterns and that it's hard to break patterns and then it's also hard to admit i'm not perfect i need to work on myself like who wants to admit that It's tough. And I I think one of the reasons is, is because people with insecure attachments tend to be really hard on themselves. Oh yeah. Super hard on themselves. I know that, you know, with myself, my own experience, knowing you and working with people as much as I had, like looking at people who have insecure attachments, we are so hard on ourselves we break ourselves down. We pick on every single thing. Our self-talk is often terrible and that we can't keep doing that. We can't, we can't do that anymore because what ends up happening is we just continue to break ourselves down or reject ourselves even more. So then we keep making even poorer decisions. And then we just, we just want to be loved, but we have rejected ourselves to a point where it's not even possible. There has to be something different. And that's why improving self-esteem and self-love is kind of the number one important thing because we really accept the love we think we deserve. And if we don't think we deserve to be loved, our chances of being able to open to real deep love and put ourselves in a position where that's going to be possible is almost impossible. We put ourselves in a place where it, it doesn't happen. Or if it does attempt to happen because we've met someone who really is amazing, oftentimes we self-sabotage and push it away. I was going to say that's why when those types of relationships end, it's almost devastating because Mm -hmm. it's like you were so attracted to them, but you weren't even attracted to yourself. Absolutely. And and if we think this other person is so great, then we say, there's no way that I'm worthy of this person. There's no way that they're going to love me. They're going to figure out why they need to leave. So you're constantly saying why do you love me? Why do you even care about me? What do you even want to be in this relationship with me? I don't even understand. And that person can say it again and again and again and again, but it never sinks in because we can't see it. We have a very different idea of ourselves and that it's really hard. It's really painful. And it's also, in my opinion, actually untrue. I think we are all inherently valuable and all inherently lovable. Our belief that we aren't is what keeps us separated. So I think the idea is how do we improve self-esteem and self-love? One of the techniques that I actually really like that that is not actually all that easy, in my opinion, is mirror work. Hmm. This is something that I learned a long time ago reading about Louise Hay's work. I don't know if you know Hay House and a lot of her authors, but Louise Hay was someone who was a big proponent of mirror work. And it's literally the idea of looking at yourself in the mirror, right in the eyes and telling yourself that you love yourself, 
looking at all the things that are really good about you. It's tough to do. You might look at yourself in the mirror every single day, but generally we tend to pick ourselves apart or look at the flaws or we're just, you know, trying to do our makeup or our hair or whatever. We're not like really paying attention, looking at ourselves in the eyes. Yeah. But if you stand there and you actually look in the mirror and you really look at yourself in the eyes and you say, I love you just as you are, it's, it feels really untrue at first, but I know when I first did that, I just started crying. I couldn't even like, it didn't feel true, but I also know that I don't know that I had ever said that to myself or even really thought it. There were things about myself that I liked or positive things about myself, but to really say that I loved myself was not something that I think I ever really thought. So standing in the mirror and doing that is tough, but I can honestly say that now after having done a lot of work and doing mirror work that I can say I love myself. There are things about myself I still want to change. Like I, I still have those moments where I think about, oh God, I wish I would like lose some weight and stop procrastinating. Like I could probably give you a really good quick list of all the bad things about me <laughs> that most of us can do. But I try to really balance it out with all the things about myself that I know are really good. And it's about balance, being able to see both sides of those things. Another piece of self-esteem and self-love is self-talk, the way that we talk to ourselves in our in our head. And as we were just talking about, we tend to be really hard on ourselves and our self-dialogue is terrible. We often say really cruel things to ourselves. We beat ourselves up. We call ourselves names. We have all this stuff. I, I have done that many, many times in the past. I still catch myself every now and then saying a little thing here and there like, oh, you're so stupid or something like that, but it's a common thing to do. And people who have insecure attachments often have very, very negative self-talk. So it's about really attempting to talk to yourself the way that you would talk to someone you loved. If you think about it this way, if you were to take the way that you talk to yourself in your head out of your head and say it to another person, would you say that to them? Especially if it was someone that you loved if it's your child or your partner or your parents or someone that you just really, really loved and you said to them, you're a loser, you're a horrible person, you're never going to amount to anything, you're unlovable. We tell ourselves these things all the time because somehow we have this idea that it's going to help us get our shit together, that we're just going to like punish ourselves enough or put ourselves in that place enough where one day it's just going to magically evolve to a place where all of a sudden we have all of our shit together and everything is amazing. But it, the moment you start thinking about, hey, if I said this to someone else every day over and over and over again, I mean, I, I have an eight-year-old daughter. If I was to say that to her every single day, do you think she'd be like, I feel super motivated and super happy and I want to do good in the world no, she'd be so depressed and sad and feel horrible and feel so such deep shame. But we do that to ourselves every single day and we don't even see a problem with it. Learning how to talk to yourself in a way that you would talk to someone that you deeply love is one of the best skills that we can do. What if it's hard for that person to express love to other people? It can be hard, certainly. So maybe it's not what you would necessarily say, but think. Hmm. I really think that everyone has at least one person that they love. We're really just not meant to be hermits. We may not express it the, fully. We may not have the, the right things to say, but underneath it all, there really is people we love. Even people who have avoidant attachment styles, there are people that they love. They just don't trust the attachment so they don't go deep, but they have people that they love and care about. And would you talk to someone that way? You just wouldn't. And this is about expressing it to yourself and changing that self-talk. Although we did talk a little bit about how people with avoidant attachment tend to have a higher level of self-esteem. So maybe this isn't going to necessarily be their inner talk. Although I think we all kind of know this tear ourselves down space. Oh yeah. Definitely. I was attempting to do this thing called a personal quarterly offsite where you kind of go off. You don't have to like go into the woods, but I, I kind of went to like someone's house in the woods and you basically unplug. I did it for about eight hours and 
you meditate and you write and you try to discover basically who you are. So you look at your family, you look at patterns, you look at connections and kind of where you're going, who you're going to impact as you're getting older and into the next generations. And it's really a lot of self-discovery. And one thing I took away from my personal quarterly offsite was the need for self-love. And I sat down with this piece of paper and I just wrote self-love in the middle. And I'm like, what makes up self-love? And I did kind of like a brain map of it where I had all these bubbles and all these different things, the physical body, the mind, forgiveness, the my spiritual self, all of these different components to it. And it's really interesting if you kind of think about what self-love is made up of. Maybe I'll try to take a picture of it and put it up on the show notes so that you can see my crazy brain working. (laughs) But I want people to understand that self-love is self-care and understanding that no matter what happened in your life, you are more than just your experiences. You are more than what's happened to you. And you are worthy and deserving of love and connection. The more that you can do to move yourself in that direction, the better. Another practice that is incredibly important is mindfulness and presence. So meditation and mindfulness is kind of a hot topic. A lot of people talk about it. We talk about the importance of it. But what is it? It's just being fully present in the moment as unjudgmentally as possible. The reason why that is so important is because these traumas, these dynamics, these things that happen to us that have formed so much of our pre-programming and these dynamics as we move forward, so much of that happened so long ago, but it's not happening now. We worry that it's going to happen again and we wait for it to happen and we look for it to happen. But so often, if you become very present and be here in the moment and observe what is happening, we can recognize that actually in the moment, everything is okay. It's not every moment is okay, but most often it is. So the more mindful, the more present you can be, if you can recognize that the anxiety or the depression or the feelings that you're having that are coming up around a lot of this, if we come back to the present moment, we can recognize that right now, everything is actually okay. And we're not saying you need to go on top of a mountain for five hours and think about this. You could take just 10 minutes out of your day Absolutely. do this. Yeah. I recommend a personal quarterly offsite to everyone, but that's not everyone has the time or the want to do that. So any time that you take to be present, give yourself a little bit of time. I did a meditation that's called like 10 deep breaths. Mm. So if you can't give yourself 10 deep breaths, like you got to reprioritize a little bit in your life, but any ability you give yourself to be fully present and fully mindful, most of the time, the vast majority of the time, things are actually okay. We're just scared about what could happen and what has happened. Mm. Learning how to express emotions in a healthy way is also a good thing to do. When we talk about communication, we often look at other people's behavior and we kind of want to call them out on their behavior and say, you're doing this, you're doing that. And I'm not saying you're wrong because sometimes people are doing crap things. But being able to express your emotions and say, when you do this thing, it makes me feel this way. The ability to use I feel statements and talk about how you feel to the other person and then say, I know you don't have the intention of hurting me. However, this behavior is not okay with me. You get to express that. It's a way to be authentic. It's a way to talk about the things that the other person is doing that's hurting you. Not everybody is going to receive this information well, but you don't really have any control over that. So it's kind of coming back to what do I have control over? In one of the other episodes, we talked about spheres of influence, this idea of rerouting your thought process based on what can I control and letting go of the things that I can't control. So we, as we saw, a lot of people with these sort of insecure attachments, there's this idea that I have to shut up about my emotions, that how I feel doesn't matter. And that's not true. We have the ability to express emotions. How we express it matters. Obviously, you want to express it in a way where the other person can hear you. But talking about how you feel 
is important. Doing it in a way that's calm and respectful of the other person is probably the best way to do it. And if you can't be in that space, maybe taking some time to kind of come back down is a good thing to do. I I have even said at one point, like, I need to, I need a minute to walk away because I'm not going to say anything nice right now. Mm. Sometimes I say the not nice thing, but <laughs> I try to avoid doing that. At we all are costs. human, but it's, yes. it's really, yeah, I think it's really important to pause. Oh, very much it's so. Because it's so easy to just start mm-hmm. running on that emotion mm-hmm. and it almost, it just, it make it worse, make the whole situation a lot worse than so it needed much. to be. And I also want to recognize that for the other person who now is waiting for that person who's paused, that can be a really vulnerable space because now you're like, what's going to happen? Now I have to wait yeah. until you feel better while I got all these emotions going. That can be really hard to do, but it's still better to, to pause and process that and recognize my uncomfortability and waiting for you to process something is my responsibility. And, and I need to move through that a little bit because forcing this other person to talk or be in this space actually is probably detrimental. Oh, yeah. Because gonna, what's going to come out is not going to be nice. It's making it. Yeah. Sometimes it make a lot of the times it makes it worse, mm-hmm. that push. But then at the same time, it's yeah, it's your, it's your anxiety going and telling you like oh, so the much. worst case scenario it's going to happen when if anything, you're just going to end up creating the worst case scenario. 100%. For me, I, I definitely in relationships when I was younger, particularly I just unleashed and was like relentless and super needy. And you have to talk about this right now. And like, now I'm like, I'm just going to shut up. (laughs) Like, I'm just going to, I'm just going to sit and take a minute because, and then I like say all the like horrible mean things inside my head until I get it out after a few seconds. And then I say, okay, like what's bothering you? Where, what are you at? What's driving you right now? what's really happening, that kind of thing. But it's hard. I know with, you know, with my partner, like she hates having to wait for me to do that. It's a really uncomfortable, vulnerable place because she doesn't know what's going to happen. But I'm like, you don't want me to talk right now because I'm not going to say anything nice and I don't want to show up. I know that I can be that really tough, scared, angry side of me that gets triggered because of my own insecurities, she's venomous. She can be really, really mean. And I know that about myself. I don't want to be that person. I don't want to be that person. But sometimes the emotions just come whooshing up. And it's almost like you just don't have the ability to control it. So I have gotten to the point where I can just be quiet. I think expressing emotion is powerful, but listening is also very powerful. Yes, I also think that in the listening piece, if you have the ability to be open and attempt to not take what they're saying personally as a personal attack or somehow you don't measure up in some way, that's a really good skill to have if you can be in a space of contribution and compassion and say, just because this other person feels this way does not mean that I'm in some way inept or I don't measure up in some way that maybe their feelings are not hinged on my ability to manage them or they're not hinged on who I am as a person. My self-worth doesn't need to be wrapped up in their emotional state. Sometimes it gets very messy. And the anxious attachment world is a very messy world. It sort of (laughs) refers back to a past episode. I can't remember which one where we just want to be heard. Maybe you should just listen to them all. (laughs) Do it now. (laughs) Right. Yeah, we we all just want to be heard. And sometimes, oh, you know what? It was the validation episode. Validation, yes. Yeah, if you can be in that place. Let me tell you, Frank and I had a conversation after that where we were like working through some stuff. And he was like validating the crap out of me. And I'm like, dang, we just did this episode. And you can't even be mad because there's nothing to fight against. But it's amazing how much that's that idea of validation and just being able to hear that person can really, really help out. I think what helped too was I remember thinking, oh, we just talked about this or we just had this episode. Let me try to use the skills now. (laughs) It really worked out. It's funny how these episodes coincide with stuff going on in our lives. I don't know if you've noticed that, but for me, I'm like, what? We're doing this episode right now? Like, how is this even happening? 
<laughs> like it just coinciding with this exact thing that's just happening. It's funny how that works. Well, of course, it's important to know this and to learn this, but then you have to actually do it. And oh. that's really tough. I am hard on myself about that all the time because I'm like, you teach this stuff all day, every day, Shana, you have all these clients. Why aren't you doing it? But I also know that meeting myself with compassion and understanding is a really important thing. My big word right now, my mantra around myself when I don't do well is grace. Just Mm. attempting to meet myself with kindness and grace because I really am doing the best that I can do. It's such a beautiful concept and a beautiful word. It's a beautiful way to live if you can meet yourself and others with grace. Obviously, if you have you know, trouble with any types of insecure attachments, therapy is something that can be certainly very helpful. DBT, uh, dialectical behavior therapy, is something that, that can work really well with insecure attachments. Trauma work, there's... Different types of treatments like EMDR, which is an eye movement. I've done that. Yeah. It can be really, really interesting and really helpful to sort of bring up and process difficult memories. So if you have like these harder dynamics or things that you went through when you were a child, these types of things like EMDR and bilateral stimulation can be really helpful with that. Neurofeedback is another thing that works really well to help with trauma symptoms or anxiety, depression. It's a really interesting type of biofeedback where it's kind of like brain training. So that Mm. can actually be very helpful as well. To add to EMDR, Mm. I thought it was you kind of going back to when you were a child. But what I ended up going through is that I was me looking at the child version of me. Yes. It's, It's very, it's a really interesting uh, treatment type. Yeah. It's a really interesting therapy. I also, interestingly enough, I saw a show, I think it's called Sex, Love, and Goop. It's the... It's the what? <laughs> it sounds weird. But Gwyneth Paltrow... Oh, that's why? Did the... Yeah, because she has the that wellness Goopy company, girl. Goop. They did a couple of different series on Netflix, and one of them was... Sex, Love, and Goop. And there is an episode on this thing called Family Constellation Therapy. I think it's episode five. I think everyone should watch it. It's it's really pretty amazing. And that can kind of delve into some of those past memories, understanding maybe what happened pre-memory, that kind of space. So that that could be potentially something interesting. It's hard to find it. I think California probably has a lot of people who do it because they're so progressive. But I I definitely, I really would like to do that. It's it's very, very interesting in looking at kind of what happens within the family system. And just as a, a sort of a quick side note, obviously this is not something that I recommend <laughs> anyone doing on their own, but MDMA is something that was just approved through the FDA for use with people who have PTSD. And also psychedelics, they're in third phase trials for a lot of different things. There are many, many trials out there that are open that people can apply for with different diagnoses, with different issues. And actually, people who do not have a specific diagnosis just looking at performance, but there's a lot of studies around there and a lot of really interesting information coming out of the psychedelic world. This is not taking shrooms and going to a party. This is not ayahuasca parties. This is not, this is not this. This is 100% a very clinical setting. Set and setting is incredibly important in this. I'm not advocating in any way that people take a psychedelic and go trip out on their own. This is not what this is for. This is about using it in a therapeutic setting only. This is about going with trained therapists, psychiatrists, and psychologists who understand and you have a guide, someone who's with you the entire time to make sure that you're safe. And it's really interesting looking at this specifically in a clinical setting. MAPS, it's a it's a European company. So I don't know. Um, I I think that the acronym is a foreign language, but it's 
maps is all capitals. They do a lot of really interesting information about psychedelics if you want to learn more. We also have a couple of books that we thought were really important around attachment. We had mentioned Platonic by Marissa G. Franco, which is really good and really interesting. She also has a podcast with Mel Robbins. That was great. So you could check that one out. She guest starred on that. Yeah. Yeah, it was amazing. The book Attached by Amir Levine and Rachel Heller is all about attachment. It's really quite interesting. So check that out. In the end, no matter what your attachment style, no matter what you've been through, I want you to know that you're not stuck anywhere. You're not a stagnant person. You can grow and learn and change. And there's so much that we can do to make things a little bit easier to create better connections, closer connections, and to create more self-love. Thank you so much for joining us. I hope that you really got a lot out of this episode. If you want to learn more, I'm going to put lots of resources in the show notes. There is a lot of really interesting information about attachment theory. I'll also put some links to some of that in the show notes. And just thank you for listening. I hope to see you again next week. Be well, and we'll see you then. If you want to share your experience, write a comment or contact us on Instagram at relationfixpod or email us at relationfixpodcast at gmail.com and tell us about it. All this information will be available in the show notes as well. If you like this episode, don't forget to leave a review, subscribe, and share it with your loved ones. 